Adam Smith once said, All money is a matter of belief. This is Save vs. Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we are talking about game economies. Now... I know that this is going to sound really boring when you just come into it going, Ugh, economies. I was awful at that class in college. Well, I was too. It's it's fine. What we really want to talk about is how in role-playing games, money is super important, but game designers really don't understand how money works. A big part of this is that we wanted to be able to discuss specifically how these systems tend to break down, especially in Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder and its other variants. What we end up seeing a lot of times is the in-game economies work under certain circumstances and they do a pretty good job in-game, but as soon as you start actually examining them to any notable degree, they start to break down and you start to lose track of some really important concepts. And we really wanted to talk about how these economies are put together, what they actually do in game what the numbers actually end up meaning and finally what that means for your game and how we can actually start thinking about these things differently so let's jump right in the first thing we wanted to talk about is the fact that in a lot of cases we lose a sense of scale so we're going to start at the top right is like kingdoms, full-sized kingdoms, and how their economies work. Now, Pathfinder's Ultimate Campaign is the essential guide to how the economies of a kingdom work in the context of player characters actually interacting with and or ruling their own kingdoms. So, in Ultimate Campaign, it has an entire section about kingdom building. You and the, your fellow player characters are rulers of a kingdom. These rules were originally printed in the Kingmaker Adventure Path, which is a really awesome adventure path. Definitely. And in it, the player characters took the reins and were developing a kingdom. The player characters build up their kingdom through a unit known as build points. Now... Obviously, when we think of role-playing games, specifically D&D and its variants, we're talking about gold pieces as the typical standard of the economy. There's copper pieces, and then ten copper pieces into a silver piece, ten silver pieces into a gold piece, and then the oft-ignored platinum piece is the ten gold piece value. But gold pieces is about the economic level where player characters are typically going to operate. Talking about oft-forgotten, you didn't even mention the Electrum piece. Oh yeah, the Electrum piece, the extremely useful piece of currency worth five silver pieces? Yep, half a gold piece. Yeah, yeah, no, we don't need that coin. Also, Electrum is a really bad metal for a lot of reasons. Not the point. The point is... In the kingdom building rules, build points are used to build all sorts of buildings, from mansions to marketplaces to... Cathedrals, cisterns, trade shops, theaters, tenements, dance hall. Huh, okay. From what we've found, a uh, build point is about equivalent to a thousand gold pieces. Well, uh, it really depends on the size of the kingdom. I mean, if you've got a small kingdom, it's worth a thousand gold pieces. For a medium-sized kingdom... 2,000, a large kingdom, 3,000. For the truly humongous kingdoms, we start to get where it's 4,000 gold pieces. So you can see the effects of gentrification on an increasingly large kingdom. But no, actually, I, I think that that's supposed to 
represent the increased administrative cost of working on a macrosco- on a microscopic scale from a macroscopic position. Uh, when you're the administrator of a great big kingdom, uh, commissioning a new housing district is a lot more complicated and involves a lot more people than if you're the ruler of a very small kingdom with one village and it just needs some more housing built. So you just you go to your local carpenters and say, hey, start building buildings, here's some money. Whereas if it's a giant kingdom, you know, you start commissioning different carpentry guilds to create the infrastructure. And even though on a local level, it's probably less expensive from an administrative position, it's probably a lot more expensive. So that's what those numbers are. The point is use build points because it's not just like straight gold pieces going into this process. I find that the kingdom building rules are actually pretty solid and a pretty good baseline for about the amount of money that it takes to build things. Uh, If you build a a city block worth of housing, it takes three build points, or a plus one sword and a little bit of extra. It's enough to build a bunch of places for people to live. Whereas if you wanted to build a magnificent castle in the middle of this kingdom, it would cost you a whopping 54 build points. Whew! 54 build points. So so you can build 18 city blocks of housing for the price of a single castle. And now, just so you get an idea of what this city block of housing is, that increases your population by about 250. So obviously, we're not just talking about a single house or even a small number of houses. We're talking about a fairly substantial number of houses and additional housing created by the construction of this city block. Obviously, that includes children and non-laborers and stuff like that. But, you know, it's it's all just a large number of people. That's pretty good ratio, if you ask me. I've heard it suggested that the value of a gold piece in modern currency would be about 50 to $64 or so, right? That sounds about right. Right, so that means that that castle on the low end is going to cost you about three and a half million and on the high end is going to be almost 14 million dollars worth of value 54 of these build points for 54,000 up to 216,000 gold pieces on the high end whereas that city block is about 3,000 gold pieces or 192,000 dollars on the low end and uh, about 12,000 gold pieces or about 750 on the high end so that that actually makes a lot of sense because you can build a lot of fairly low-end housing for about $768,000 or $192,000 or whatever the numbers work out to exactly it just it does have that sense of verisimilitude when we're talking about like medieval two or three room housing right It does. Now, here's where it starts breaking down. Here's really what I want to talk about. In the same book, in Ultimate Campaign, if you jump to the front, they have rules for downtime activity. Now, let's say you're done adventuring, and you come back to town, and you want to build a house. Just one house. How much would it cost you to do all of the materials and just buy the house? Well, according to the book, it costs 1,290 gold pieces. That's wiping out about a third of our budget for the low-end kingdom or about a tenth of our budget for the high-end kingdom. I mean, that's if we're only getting 10 houses out of that, there's no way we're hitting that 250 population. That's 25 people to a house. That's 
even even in a medieval society where people are like popping out babies like crazy and living and you have whole families yeah living in extended family units you're not going to get 25 people to one house maybe 7 to 10 but 25 that's that's really stretching it on top of that there will be at least some housing where it's only two or three people anyway you really want to see where it breaks down if I want to buy a castle, uh-huh. just buy a castle in okay. the downtime rules, it costs 7,390 gold pieces. No. Yeah. Not 70,000? Nope. That's that's not even a full seven times the amount that it costs to buy a house. That's a plus two sword with a considerable amount of change back. That's a, that's a plus two sword with enough change to buy a plus one sword. That's downgrading your sword by a plus. At, at a fairly low level, that's not that much. Seventh, see, because what we should be looking at, bare minimum, is if the house costs, uh, okay, if, the, if that house costs uh, 1,290 gold pieces, right? So we've got, uh, we've got about a five and three quarters to one ratio on that houses to castle. So we get about six houses per castle on that. And again, we're not getting anywhere close to that 250 mark. Uh, now, see, what I would more expect is a cost of um, if we if we just went with that 18 to one ratio, which is not what we're actually looking for, obviously, because we still are talking about more housing than that. But 18 to one ratio that we were talking about before that gives us about 23,000 gold pieces, right? Uh, 23,220 gold pieces. That's a lot closer to what we were looking at for the castle when we were talking about the kingdom rules, but if we double that and call it 36 houses and assume that, you know, 36 houses, that's a lot closer to that 250 population we're looking to if people are really cramming into houses and living in large extended family units in fairly small houses. Obviously, these aren't tiny shacks we're talking about because there is a tenement level below this that represents housing for 250 people that is extremely cheap. But yeah, if we're talking about 36 houses, that puts us about that 50,000 mark where we start reaching the level that we would be looking at with the kingdom. That that would make more sense. It would. Now... That that just boggles the mind that in the same book, they can be so wrong about the numbers. It gets even worse when we start talking about the size of cities and the size of kingdoms. In the kingdom building rules, if you completely fill out a district, that gives you about 9,000 people. Now, if you look in, oh, one of the books. Core rulebook. If you look in the core rulebook, you find that 9,000 people is the size of a small town. Right. That's fairly reasonable. It, it is, but the sizes of cities and the amount of money that they uh, make in the core rulebooks is also just wrong. In the core rulebooks, they're talking about a metropolis being anything over 25,000 people. And even in the real-life medieval period where we didn't have actual magic and fantasy creatures and all that. I got some lists of historic city size, and London was sporting a population of 25,000 in the year 1000, which is fairly fairly early medieval, if I recall properly. Around the Renaissance, which is more what we'd be talking about for, say, Pathfinder, London, which by no means is the biggest city in the world. It's just a fairly 
commonly cited very large city. Around the year 1300, which is early Renaissance, we were looking at a population of 80 to 100,000. And by the end of the Renaissance, it was approaching half a million. And it's fair to say Pathfinder has Renaissance levels of technology because there are places where there are guns. Uh, there are steam-powered vehicles, albeit they're fairly rare. I mean, it, it is the very cusp of this technology, and this technology is not widely available, but it does exist. We should be seeing populations in those hundred thousands to half a millions. Now, 4th edition D&D. I remember the setting explicitly talked about points of light, this notion that society somehow filled out in a way that in real life does not happen at all, but in these points of light, these cities with vast expanses of untamed wilderness between them with just a few fairly safe roads between them, and then the cities themselves were just these points of light along the map. And that's a neat setting. And it would explain that sort of number system where you would see these these metropolises starting to build up around the 25,000 mark. But in real life, we were seeing populations in Moscow of half a million in, I think, the year 14 to 1500. Don't quote me on that because I don't have those numbers in front of me, but I seem to recall reading a population of half a million in Moscow about then. Um, obviously, nothing like the 18 million there are there now, which is completely different and obviously a product of the modern era but in pathfinder we have magic we have magical technology we have priests who have the ability to literally heal people these are all things that should be massive contributors to population size blessing crops you know if we wanted to see a place that had just what would be the normal medieval levels of technology we'd be thinking Raha Doom where the gods are absolutely banished and shunned and therefore there are no divine blessings of crops there are no divine healers there's none of that so there's no availability of those things that would be more reflective of this but when we're talking about just cities in general 25,000 is not that much. Maybe taking a look at economies of this size and this magnitude is really outside the scope of the game. Player characters are rarely going to be interacting with these numbers. So I understand that they might not be as fine-tuned as they need to be. Right, it's not city-building simulator. Even with the city-building rules and the rules for downtime and the rules for kingdom-building, all of those are meant to be game systems for a game, and you're supposed to get a game experience out of that that, by and large, is meant to support this role-playing game, not be, in and of itself, this opportunity for a city and kingdom-building game. Let's talk about personal wealth of player characters. Mm -hmm. Now, oftentimes in Pathfinder... The gold pieces that player characters get are very well doled out in uh, specific chunks, so that way they can buy their armor, that way they can buy their weapons, that way they can continue on this adventuring lifestyle. Yeah, 3rd edition has always had a pretty strict system for doling out gold pieces to keep everyone on a fairly steady advancement track. But you know what bothers me about this? There is no incentive for when the player characters get back to town to live anything more than a poor lifestyle. They have no reason to go out and eat good food, to stay in good accommodations. Well, I mean, nothing but role-playing reason, and that should be reason enough, but at the same time, you are playing a game, and everything you do is going to lend something to either your success or failure within that game world. And if the difference between spending 
a hundred gold pieces living a lifestyle of luxury for a month versus spending 10 gold pieces living like an average Joe lifestyle or even spending one gold piece to live a crummy lifestyle where you're absolutely slumming it. That can be the difference between having enough gold to purchase a healing potion or be able to get that magic sword you're looking for or whatever. All of those things are contributing factors to your success. Uh, It becomes important to consider those things. Now, in real life, we all experience some sort of hedonic value. That is, we enjoy things, you know? You, You buy video game systems because you like playing video games. Not because it contributes to your personal success as a person, but because it makes you happy. Because you enjoy it. You buy a nicer house. You paint the walls pleasant colors. You... Do all of these things specifically to get that hedonic value, eat good food. All of those things are things meant to make you feel happier. And player characters don't have an incentive to do this. There's no, in most games, there's no happiness score that you're trying to increase or reduce or keep at a very specific level so that your character is the most productive or whatever. And another thing that bothers me about uh, how tightly controlled the amount of money the player characters get is it really breaks down haggling. The player character who puts a bunch of points into Charisma really wants to be able to use it whenever they can. They want to go up to the uh, merchant and go, is that really the best price I could get for that sword? Is that really the best price I could get for that healing potion there? And they want to be able to roleplay a bit. They want to be able to get into this uh, character with high Charisma and get a discount on money. And... I find that if the uh, prices are super fixed and the amount of money the player characters get is super uh, tightly controlled, as a DM, I'm often not willing to budge the price of items that much. Well, I mean, obviously, haggling can really bog down a game if it's permitted to go on too long, but it can also be part of the game experience. People who want to haggle are the ones who are going to do it. I remember specifically 4th edition. I've always said that 4th edition is my least favorite edition, but it had some of the best GMing advice of any edition of D&D I've ever seen. And one thing it was talking about is paying attention to what your players enjoy. One of the examples they gave was a player who got a good price on a sword and was happy about that. And that is a valid reason to play a game, and that is a valid way to play a game. Now, we don't want to bog down the game with constant haggling. We don't want it to be the notion that if you're not getting a better price on things that you need to spend time role-playing it out or whatever. But that doesn't mean that we can't have the occasional opportunity to haggle, especially with a high-budget item like a magical sword or something, especially if that's available. And that's where that's where we need to have some openness for this. I remember there are some modules I can think of, right? First one that comes to my mind is... Uh, 5th edition's Tomb of Annihilation. There are a few little outposts that increase the price of everything by 50%. If for no other reason, then it's remote and distant and it's hard to get things there. Yeah, I know. Uh, I think Serpent's Skull and uh, Legacy of Fire, the the two um, Pathfinder adventure path. Serpent's Skull takes place largely in the jungles of the Mwangi Expanse, quite a ways from what is the equivalent of western civilization in pathfinder meanwhile katapesh is a desert nation that's adjacent to several very wealthy nations and is a huge trade post and is very well known for that so in both of those there are places where prices are jacked up and there's opportunities for the player characters to haggle that's interesting it's good 
but it doesn't necessarily encompass the entire game experience. I know that we've been talking about Pathfinder a bit here, but I want to take a quick aside. I actually really like games where they don't have as tight control on the numbers when it comes to wealth. Specifically in the world of darkness, the amount of money that you have is based on your dots and resources. Now, if you have three dots and resources, you can easily buy any two-dot item, as long as it's available. Right. If you can find it, you can buy it. Yeah, you can just have them, and pretty much as many of them as you want, per the rules. Now, obviously, there's got to be some limits to that. You know, just because you can afford to buy a two-dot pistol doesn't mean that you can fill a crate with two-dot pistols and then build a storeroom to fill with them. But at the same time, there's no hard and fast rule for exactly how many two-dot pistols you can buy. The idea is that there's a lot of discretion to it. And I think that actually kind of reflects real life to some degree, depending on your level of financial security. For example, I don't really think too much of it if I stop at McDonald's on the way to work or something, just because I have a hankering to stop at McDonald's or Taco Bell or something. Uh, just the other week, they, they brought back the nacho fries, and those are so good at Taco Bell, right? Have you had those? Oh, yeah. They're amazing. Uh, yeah, I'm actually really impressed because they sounded like a dumb idea when I first saw them. But that's not the point. The point is, I stopped for some nacho fries. I didn't sit and check my bank account, and I didn't worry super hard about the price of those nacho fries because I knew I was in the black, and I knew they were incredibly expensive. Now, if I found myself stopping for nacho fries every day, I think I'd start to think worry that maybe I'm overspending. Maybe I should consider backing off the nacho fries. They get expensive, but just every once in a while you can grab nacho fries. Similarly, with this dot system, like in the world of darkness, you can buy something that's a dot less than your number of dots, or even on the dot mark of your number of dots. You've got three dots, you can buy a three dot item. It's not a big deal every once in a while, but if you start buying a lot of three dot items, the the storyteller should start, like, reining you in a little bit and saying, you know, maybe you're overspending. Maybe you should uh, start worrying. I remember in our Changeling game, we did have a player character who made a lot of purchases right at their dot level. And we, we warned them pretty extensively, like, okay, you're really extending yourself. And they said, I'm aware of that, but I'd like to do this. And we ended up giving them the condition broke as F. You know, they're just completely broke. And basically what it said is they just can't spend money. They don't have money to spend until they recover this, you know, their next paycheck. That's the sort of thing that you would do in a system like that. It's a little more freeform. Did you ever play D20 Modern? I barely did. I played one game, two sessions long. I ran a game that I think lasted a total of four sessions. It really wasn't a great system. It was an interesting idea, but one thing it had was it had a wealth rule where characters would have a certain amount of wealth and then you had to make checks in order to buy things. Every item had a DC that you had to reach or exceed in order to purchase that item. If you failed that DC by a small amount, then you could purchase that item, but it's going to tax your resources and you'll lose some wealth. And if you missed it by a lot, then for whatever reason, you just don't have the money to buy it right now. It was an interesting system. It's, again, kind of a free-form system, but also kind of a free-form system that worked in an interesting and flexible way. And if an item was enough less than your amount, you could just take 10 on your roll and not have to worry about losing any of your resources. But it was an interesting system. 
And I remember reading the developer's notes on it. It was a direct result of a Call of Cthulhu game where all the investigators realized that you basically had to choose at character creation if your character was going to have a car or if your character was going to have useful equipment. It was it was a one or the other thing because the cost of a car was so much. And that's just not how real life works. I didn't go out with cash and buy my car. I got a loan on my car and I, I pay an amount of money that's a lot more reasonable at my personal income level. If I was very wealthy, I might buy a car straight up, but you know, I haven't achieved that level yet, right? Well, let's get back on track here. The last thing I really want to talk about is the, the small amounts of money. In Pathfinder, it's really easy to just go, okay, I want a 10-foot pole, a sack, a ladder, 50 feet of rope, a 10-foot of chain, manacles, and just all these little things and tally it up and go, okay, I have about 50 gold pieces worth of equipment here. But what about the people who aren't player characters? What about the NPCs? How much money are they making and how much money does it does it take to live their lives well there are some answers in the book i believe the costs of living as given in the pathfinder book uh the pathfinder core rule book uh for a poor lifestyle obviously if you're absolutely destitute you live on nothing you sleep wherever you can you eat whatever you can find uh your health is probably failing and you're doing poorly that's just life but if you want to live poorly three gold pieces a month average which is like a normal lifestyle is 10 gold pieces a month wealthy is 100 and a truly extravagant lifestyle is a thousand gold pieces a month that's for superstars and kings and very wealthy adventurers who for role-playing reasons decide they like to live that way with those numbers in mind how much does it cost to actually be an npc well if you are a skilled worker you get somewhere between two and five gold pieces a day if you're an unskilled laborer you make how much i did the math and it comes to about 12 gold pieces a month if you have a plus zero bonus on your skill check for crafts or profession and you roll just about average all month and you're working five-day work weeks which is the assumption of the pathfinder setting even though the five-day work week is a fairly modern innovation but that's not the point. If you have a plus four bonus, which would represent a character that took one rank in a skill and also has that plus three bonus for it being a class skill, that puts you at about 28 gold pieces a month. And with a plus seven bonus, which is that same character, if they took skill focus as their feat, puts you at about 39 gold pieces a month. All of those are going to be able to live at the average lifestyle with the very unskilled laborer being right on the cusp of being broke all the time. You know, probably he he's not banking a lot of money or anything. If there's any unforeseen circumstances, that's going to be a problem. He might be able to take a week off or something like once a year for a wedding or for uh, an opportunity to uh, help raise his child or whatever. But in general, he's going to be pretty broke. All of these numbers seem about right, at least for skilled and unskilled laborers. But if you have managers, they make between two and five gold pieces a day. If you're a steward, you make two gold pieces a day. If you're a master smith or a master craftsman of some sort, you make four gold pieces a day. And if you're a ship captain, you make five gold pieces a day. For whatever reason, I was thinking there was about 22 working days in a month. That's about right, right? 
It sounds about right. Drop out four weekends. Uh, yeah, that's that's about right. 22 working days in a month. So that innkeeper's making 44 gold pieces a month. That headmaster's making 66 gold pieces a month. That master smith, and we can probably just say master craftsman there. I'm sure a carpenter makes a fairly similar wage. And, you know, any master craftsman is going to make about 88 gold pieces a month. And that doctor or ship's captain is hitting that 100 gold piece mark. That's the holy grail. That's where you go from being average to finally being able to live that wealthy lifestyle. That actually all works out really well. I like that. That's a pretty good system. You know why this bothers me? Why does this bother you? If you go to the core rulebook and have people who follow you, just skilled or unskilled laborers, you have completely different numbers. An unskilled laborer who is following you on an adventure is making one silver piece a day. That's that's three gold pieces a month because he's not taking days off. Likewise, a skilled laborer is making a whopping three silver pieces a day. But nine gold pieces a month to risk life and limb? Because this is different than staying in town and, you know, working at your local smith, you know, just as an apprentice or just, you know, picking up extra work or whatever. That would be like a dangerous journey sort of thing. Now, okay, so let's let's take a few considerations here, okay? So this three gold pieces a month for this unskilled laborer, that might actually work because it costs him 10 gold pieces to survive normally, which leaves him with two gold pieces a month. So he's got three gold pieces a month. That's That might be a good, good-ish deal if he's willing to take that sort of risk to life or limb. But even so, I don't know. Maybe, you know, I might agree to that if, if I'm getting a share of the adventure. Yeah. It doesn't even have to be a big share. I mean, if I'm getting 5%. I mean, I know what adventurers make, you know. Just to stand outside the cave and make sure that their donkeys with their equipment don't run away or whatever. I mean, yeah, it's a risky venture. It's pretty dangerous. But at the same time, you know, if there's a share involved, this three gold pieces, that's actually mighty tempting. Even And even if I go home empty-handed, you know, uh, that's that's a whole month I didn't have to pay that ten gold pieces average survival rate. Even in town, the numbers get really weird. In Ultimate Campaign, an abbot makes four gold pieces a day. Okay. That's someone who's running the uh, a church in place of the adventurer who's off doing their thing. This is the, the person running it, casting spells. They're a third level caster and whatnot. But it gets weird. If I go into town as an adventurer and I need a simple first level spell, I'm going to be paying 10 gold pieces just to get a cure light wound. Yeah, it's 10 gold pieces times the caster level times the spell level, which means a first level caster casting cure light wounds once gets 10 gold pieces. This abbot, you said, makes how much? Four gold pieces a day. Yeah, he's casting on average, uh, that'd be, what, two two and a half spells a week? If, if he's doing the seven days a week, he's casting two spells a week if he's only working five days. Wow, yeah, that is that is a pretty bad breakdown. Um, it seems like the thing with, with the casters, when I think of spellcasters in D&D, I guess the analogy I come up with in my head is like tech gurus or people who like fix computers and stuff like that. That'd be kind of the analog to me. And it seems to me that if someone was charging this sort of uh, extravagant amount that there would be enough competition to drive some of these prices down. But 
I don't know. Maybe there's some sort of price fixing or something going on here. Okay, wait, wait. We can reconcile this. And I actually do think it's possible because maybe that Abbot's four gold pieces, that is with him casting spells normally. That's that's his service as a spellcaster being hired in this capacity. This ten gold pieces to cast that Cure Light Wounds, that's a special favor. That's a separate thing from his duties as an abbot. That's him going above and beyond what's expected of him and being contracted outside of that capacity. Furthermore, this probably keeps him from doing his regular duties as an abbot, so he has to get someone else to substitute for the day, maybe an apprentice who isn't a spellcaster or as one of those crappy NPC classes like Adept or something who's just kind of filling in. So he's taking, he's stepping outside of his normal job responsibilities and getting a substitute, you know, that would change this substantially and make that number make more sense. It would be the same thing with a wizard, but I feel like, I feel like then this number shouldn't just be spellcaster level times spell level times 10 gold pieces. It really should be based on the character level of the character you're contracting. You know, are you getting a fifth level wizard to take a day off and do a favor for you that's where you're getting this money that this number that's a substantially greater amount of money than their regular wages because this is them stepping outside of their job duties and having to like make up work and catch up right it would have to be all of this is really mind-boggling and weird the amount of gold pieces that things cost is fairly inconsistent even across one game And I I suppose the big reason that we want to talk about this is just to shine some light on it, to look and go, hey, this is a little odd, this is a little weird. You might want to understand what's going on when you're using all these different rules. And sadly, I don't feel like the newer editions are doing a lot to correct these things. They, They typically just copy and paste more or less the same numbers from previous editions. I mean, that's what's been going on with D&D for quite a while. Um, third edition kind of ironed out the curve. Fourth edition changed everything a little bit. And then fifth edition has... Is actually a lot different. Yeah, but it also doesn't break these numbers down the same way at all. Like, these numbers don't exist by and large in fifth edition, which actually might be for the best. Because maybe at the end of the day, we need to just admit that fantasy worlds are too different. And that the actual economy of a fantasy world is going to be driven by how it's used in the game, and how it affects the player characters. So, that was our episode on the economy of role-playing games. Up next, we have the rule of cool. What is the rule of cool? Well, it's where you consider something to be permissible within the rules just because it's cool. How does this affect games? How do we balance this with the games? And what are the benefits of instituting a rule of cool? Stay tuned for that. Once again, this has been Save vs. Rant. Thank you very much for listening. Whoever said money can't buy happiness simply didn't know where to go shopping. Gertrude Stein Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. 
Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at SaveVsRant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.